How do various payment models influence a patient's experience of healthcare? Why is paying for healthcare so complicated? And what does an equitable and value-based payment system look like when it comes to paying for our health? Join me, Raghav, as your host on the Preventive Medicine Podcast, where we explore preventive medicine from all angles and discuss how to be proactive about our health in an effort to live better lives. This week's guest is Dr. Joshua Liao, who is an Associate Professor of Medicine, the Medical Director of Payment Strategy, the Associate Chair of, of, for Health Systems at the University of Washington. He is also the founder and director of the Value and System Science Lab, nicknamed Vessel at UW, as well as a member of the Physician-Focused Payment Model Technical Advisor Committee, or PTAC, as a part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. Liao is also a brand new podcast host, and he just launched the Health Equity Conversations podcast, so make sure you go check that one out if you are interested in the topic. And as a brief note, the opinions, views, and statements made in this podcast are solely made by Dr. Liao and do not represent those of his employer. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. All right, so we're just going to get straight into the matter here. First question is, money is not glamorous, especially when it comes to healthcare payment models. So what gets you up every morning and why do you do what you do? Yeah, so I acknowledge that not everybody is really energized necessarily by payment and payment issues, but um, I am. I think what really gets me up is the ability to kind of think about all the things that um, maybe not only that I'm interested in, but that I have a, a skill set in and also that I'm energized by um, in how do we work on all of those to kind of drive patient health. So as a clinician, it obviously includes taking care of people clinically, but I think for me, thinking about systems level issues like payment and care delivery um, is another way. So I'm excited to be able to braid those together and do both. Definitely. And I'm an avid listener of the Design Lab pod, which is actually where I found you. Um, listened to your episode, absolutely loved it. Um, the fellow nerd in me. And one of the things that you mentioned in there is that you were actually into literature. And before you got into all of this, you probably still are. And you mentioned how you really enjoy kind of the human experience and how people experience various aspects of life. And that's one of the things that kind of binds all this together. Um, and people experience healthcare through money. So that seems like a very easy way for you to be able to understand and really enjoy it just by stepping in people's shoes and understanding how they experience. So that's really cool. Um, and in my opinion, money and healthcare payment models ties hand in hand with prevention, because if you can design a payment model that's equitable, that helps everyone get what they need, like the people that need it, what they need, then you can actually practice preventive medicine on a large scale. So the hallmark question of this podcast is, what does preventive medicine mean to you? Yeah, I think you've touched on a few things. Um, I think most importantly, it's that what we really want out of healthcare and medicine, the output we want is health, right? And I think acknowledging that some of that is involved in healthcare, all the tests we do, therapies that we deliver, the medicine of it, and then some of it's not, right? Uh, and I think there's increasing awareness about that. But I think if we kind of focus on that North Star of like health is the output we want, for, to me, preventive medicine is, is the component um, of promoting health that comes from healthcare, right? So I, I think one of the challenges has been, you know, 
is health a function purely of healthcare? Like if you get all your tests and take all your meds, is that health? No, I think there are many other things outside of healthcare. But we also have to acknowledge on the other side that the things that we do in healthcare do, right, mm-hmm. um, impact health. And so that part of it, I consider preventive medicine. Definitely. And uh, another uh, guest that we had on this podcast, Dr. Austin Baraki, um, he always mentions how largely preventive medicine and medicine in general and health in general, as you're stating, outside of the spectrum of healthcare is largely the behaviors that we have outside of the hospital. And our contact with the healthcare system is a very small portion of that when you look at kind of the bigger picture, because most people aren't hospitalized for a period of 30 days to anything longer than that. But when people do contact with the healthcare system, it uh, ends up being a significant portion of whatever it may be financially. As we see, there's a large medical burden, a medical debt burden with the United States. So unfortunately, being a small part of it in the overall grand scheme ends up being a large part financially, which is why I really want to talk to you about this. Yeah. I, let me just make one comment there and just say that I think part of it is like the function of people's behaviors. I think it would be remiss of me to say that, yeah, to, to not say that another part of it is also the systems factors, the structural things, right? Um, I think one of the myths is that we can kind of make decisions and pull ourselves up um, to better health. Don't get me wrong. I think that's a key part. But um, I think part of this whole systems movement is recognizing there are structures that are inborn, right? Related to our lived environments, how we eat, how we um, get transportation, um, the stability of our housing, um, the degree of um, domestic violence, et cetera. There's all these other factors that drive health. So I think that needs to be put up there alongside individual behavior. 100%. I'm I'm so happy you brought that up so early into this podcast because it kind of takes that bigger picture of what health is um, and kind of puts into light that, yes, we do have control over some things or exercise, diet, but even that to a large extent is kind of determined, sometimes predetermined by our zip codes and the people that we are around, all those kinds of things. And we'll touch on that a little bit later. Um, We talked about a large medical burden uh, or medical debt burden. I will skip the debt part because I kind of try to forget about medical debt, you know, my own (laughs) student loans. But I kind of want to break it down for people. How do people pay for healthcare right now? Because we don't just hand us physicians money. And how did it get so complicated where there's so many hoops to jump through? Yeah, I mean, I think... um I think it was really important as a framing content concept for me is that um, systems don't rise up out of a vacuum. There are reasons um, for almost every system we have um, in society, in, in my opinion. It uh, doesn't mean they're always thought through. It uh, doesn't mean they're most efficient, <laughs> uh, but they exist for a reason, right? So I think you're getting at the heart of that. Um, another foundational thing I would say is that healthcare and paying for healthcare is a very, um, it's a relatively unique thing. Um, certainly the other types of insurance. But when you think about what we're talking about, we're talking about um, a thing that if you had to pay on your own for a catastrophic event or a very serious illness, would be uh, just unattainable. It would just be undoable for many people, right? So the trade-off we've made is paying smaller amounts of money on a predictable basis to guard against that low probability event that you might need it, right? And some might call this sick care when you get really sick. Well, this is a preventive (laughs) health and preventive Mm -hmm. care podcast. So does that model work well for preventive care? And I would say not so well necessarily, right? Because part of the part of preventive medicine is making sure you're getting the checkups, you are, you know, doing the things you need to do in and outside of healthcare, right? To remain healthy. And that, that steady cadence of activity and of work and yes, of payment is at odds, I think in some ways with how we might deal with sick care. So part of the complication is really thinking about what happens when people get sick or very sick, and then what helps people stay healthy. And I think you see some of the complication there. 
the other thing I'll just touch on briefly is that, you know, um, you know, there are historical reasons, right, of how we put health benefits um, and tied it to our employment in this country Mm -hmm. that other countries haven't done that have made it pretty complicated. Definitely. I think I've read several books on uh, kind of reimbursement models and just the healthcare system and how it's structured in general. Still can't wrap my brain around it. There's just so many little nooks and crannies that dive into and then play a part to something else. It's just very mind boggling. And one thing that I want to ask you real quick is you mentioned that if there's a catastrophic event that a person would not be able to pay for it. Like, for example, if I unfortunately got into a catastrophic car accident, if I did not have insurance, I probably would not be able to pay my medical bills and so forth. Why is it that way? Why is it so expensive? What's well, a? I'm glad you're asking all these easy questions. No, I'm joking. It's a very complicated <laughs> one. But I would say, you know, but let me take a step, half step back and say, um, you know, this idea of um, this idea of prevention is an important one because, you know, health is the basis of, of everything that we do in life. I think that's part of the kind of mm-hmm. the, the ethos of, of this podcast. And exactly. Um, and, and I think the, um, the, the challenge with that, I would say, when we think about paying for healthcare is that it's not a commodity in that way, right? This is not going to buy a refrigerator. Um, <laughs> you, you know, you're not going to say, well, I have this budget and that's the good. And let me look at it and, I'll either buy it or not. I'll walk out of the store with it or I won't, right? Um, and so I think often with economics and payment, we get into that mode of what's the market and market forces, but for many, many reasons, but fundamentally because this is the basis upon which we live our lives and people don't think about health that way. I, I think we have to be kind of cognizant of the limitations of, of that, right? Um, and so you get these these unique dynamics that you don't see in other healthcare uh, in other markets, right? I would mm-hmm. say that you see in healthcare and there, there are reasons for that. I think well-founded would sometimes. Uh, I like how you've been keeping kind of the lens of prevention within the entire conversation that we've have, been having. And I feel like I've been trying to steer away from that a little bit, but we'll bring it back. Um, you've mentioned prevention several times and kind of, it's not incentivized within this model. Uh, we kind of focus uh, focus most of our payments towards when someone gets really sick, if something catastrophic happens, kind of hedging our bets with those small little payments. But when it does come to preventive services, for example, going to your primary care physician, getting like your labs checked, all of this kind of stuff, where does that fall into the reimbursement model and why kind of are those disincentivized, quote unquote? Yeah. So I think um, I, I would I would take another I would take another perspective on what you just said. And I think the, the key concept here is that incentives are not straightforward. It's not that there is one or there is a, mm-hmm. an incentive, you know, for any specific service or behavior. Um, you know, for example, preventive care is wrapped into benefits that people have through their health insurance, right? So setting aside this big issue of like underinsurance or no insurance, mm-hmm. which is an issue, but we set that aside for a second. Preventive services are, are covered, right? Um, and I think they're covered in part because people recognize the value of those those things. Um, but but there's a tension around, like, if I do something and I prevent a bad outcome, how would you have known that? It's like the unknowable thing exactly. that a lot of us in healthcare grapple with, right? Um, you got a vaccine, you didn't get sick. So I saved you from one or two sicknesses. It's very hard to know, right? Mm-hmm. But the identification for when you get, do get sick and you get an ammonia, I can see that, right? And so I think... The incentives are there, but the payment is not necessarily the same. And I think that's really a nuance that's important to identify. And I love that you brought up the word value because it brings about a perfect transition. And you kind of brought about or kind of founded the value and systems science lab at University of Washington. 
Um, and that kind of focuses on bringing value to healthcare. You've penned a very nice letter, which I unfortunately did not read because I don't have full access to the, the journal. Um, I'll, find a, I'll find a way to access it. But what is the value in the system science lab and why did you start it? What does it do? Yeah. Um, so thanks for asking. You know, the value system science lab, shorthand, we call it vessel is really meant, um, to be a research and evaluation uh, unit that tries to basically take, um, healthcare innovation, in my opinion, kind of that last mile. And the reason I say that is I think a lot of times we focus on healthcare innovation as, okay, we had a scientific breakthrough. We have a new medication, a new diagnostic, a new therapeutic. Those are incredibly important. Um, but I think often people implicitly think, well, then that's it, right? We, we, we have it. So let's make it available and let's go. It's fairly obvious to all of us though, that that takes you to some point, but then you have to figure out how do I pay for that thing? How do I finance it? How do mm -hmm. I organize the care? How do I deliver it? Right. And at the very end, there's also decisions that have to be made. You know, there have to be decisions by clinicians, by patients, by caregivers, loved ones um, about, am I going to prescribe this thing? Am I going to take this thing? You know, and mm -hmm. so that space in the very last leg is what I work on uh, through Vessel is really to say, how do we think about payment, care delivery and decision making? And how do we then use that as a way to promote health, recognizing that that bridges the gap between biomedical kind of innovation and, in my opinion, good outcomes? Definitely. And I want to talk a little bit more about value. And uh, I had a question coming up later on that I'm going to move up here because we're on the subject of value. Um, I really like how you're kind of looking at how do we take these new innovations and make them more valuable to these patients so that they can actually use them, pay for them properly instead of um, these new chemotherapy drugs costing like tens of thousands of dollars, not necessarily being covered by insurance all the time, having all these prior authorizations to jump through, all these different hoops. And one of the things that I think you tweeted at some point was kind of this uh, this JAMA article where it talked about reducing the overuse of the healthcare um, kind of system and kind of how does that impact patient care? So go ahead. No, no, please. Okay. So yeah, the question is like, if we're focusing on value, one of the questions that I had is, let's say that you are trying to prevent someone to be ill in the future and you are practicing preventive kind of model. You're like, okay, so let me get all these tests so that I have all this data and I can prevent future illnesses. Whereas one component of value is kind of not using what you need to and not overusing the medical system. So how do you kind of balance those two? Yeah. So that's a great question. And it's not, doesn't have an easy answer, I'll say. Um, but I think the first is, as we touched on, recognizing that um, if the output you want is health, that that comes from a lot of things outside of tests and therapies, right? I think mm -hmm. acknowledging that's very important. I think that is a counterbalancing force to this idea of overuse. If I just do more, I'll get more health outcome, right? Uh, nothing is that linear um, in that way. The second is actually thinking about the type of healthcare we want people to use, right? And um, so if we know that certain preventive steps or preventive services can lead to long run health, we want to we want to focus on that and how we pay for and reimburse care. Uh, the third, I think, is recognizing that um, the timeline through which we would see these benefits are don't always um, align right with our payment cycle. So, for instance, mm -hmm. if I'm adjusting blood pressure medication or we're thinking about um, cardiovascular health, am I going to see that in 30 days, 365 days? Probably not. And I don't think we've done all the work we need to do as, as, um, as a country to figure out, well, how would payment reflect that? The idea that you would need 
a long time to see the benefit there. And then finally, I want to highlight that I think, you know, the other thing I would consider when I'm considering overuse is this issue of equity. And that's a word that's easy to throw around, but it's very concrete here where you and I might look at certain things and say, wow, there's overuse in the system. But if we zoom in, unfortunately, in many cases, there are certain communities and patients for which that thing is underused, right? Unfortunately, that often is... um, they're communities that are historically marginalized. And so I think we want to be very careful when we're trying to kind of bend down overuse that we don't exacerbate underuse of services. Um, So I I would take that kind of three or four pronged approach. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about equity in just a second, but I want to take a step back. And you mentioned the kind of time scale of these interventions when you kind of practice quote unquote prevention about, you mentioned blood pressure. Mm -hmm. You're not looking at outcomes on 365 days. Maybe you're looking at like 10, 20, even 30 year outcomes, right? Um, What is your idea? And you mentioned that like, it's difficult to kind of gauge payment for that. What is your idea for that? How do you reconcile that? Yeah. Um, because I, I think that's one of the backbones of where this goes from and how you reimburse. And I'm, I ask difficult questions on the podcast. I'm very sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's good. It's good. These these are very important topics. They're too important to not be tested by you know hard questions like this. So I'm glad you're asking. Um, uh, continuing that thread, I don't know that there's an easy answer for it. But I do think one very practical thing is making sure we're measuring the thing that we reasonably expect to see in whatever time frame we're talking about. So. Um, there's a, a great push to focus on outcome measures in healthcare, mm-hmm. right? I think that's incredibly important. I also think we need to level set though. If you're going to say, I'm going to assess your performance and then apply financial incentives to that performance on the time period of 30 days, 90 days, or a, a year that you're probably not going to see, right? The benefits exactly, in yeah. that time period. And by the way, if you saw a bad outcome in that time period, the roots of that may be well before this year began, mm-hmm. right? So what are the measures that we should then check here? And and so that this may go a bit against kind of the mainstream around um, focusing on outcomes, but I think we really need to then counterbalance that with good process outcomes. And look, it, process outcomes have limitations, right? But one of the benefits is to be able to say, this is something that's actually in control within the timeframe we're talking about. And so that actually energizes, I think, clinicians and healthcare organizations to actually put the effort in, right? It's not deflating. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. Sure. And then one of the things you also talked about, um, I was kind of listening uh, peripherally to this lecture slash talk you gave. uh, It's on YouTube under uh, UW Surgery. You were talking about kind of bundled care and how that kind of plays into the value-based care model where you're kind of bundling all the value into one kind of payment instead of having all these payments go in these separate places. How do you reconcile insurance into that? We haven't mentioned insurance yet into this. And I know it's added even more complexity to this, but when you pay for like several different things, um, insurance may cover one thing, may not cover one thing. How does insurance go into that bundled payment model? Yeah. So um, it's a great question. You know, I mean, I think you, you can't have bundled payment without some type of payer or insurer, right? Mm-hmm. You need a partnership between um, a insurer or a payer. And, you know, clinicians, organizations, quote, providers. I think if you don't have that, you don't have bundle payment. In other words, what would you agree to bundle, 
And what would you agree to pay for that bundle? So in some ways, actually, that point is addressed, right? Because before you get started, mm. you have to agree, this is the time period. These are the services that are in. These are the services that are out, right? And if both sides don't agree and clasp hands around that- You, you can't do it. You, you can't do it. Yeah. So in some ways, that is addressed. It doesn't mean there aren't issues. It doesn't mean everybody 100% agrees. But I think to answer your question, insurers play a key role in that, right? Now, the real question becomes, in setting that bundle, are the incentives for the insurers and clinicians and their organizations completely aligned, right? That I think is the challenge. How do we align those? I know that's also a difficult question because theoretically, I've had um, uh, Jeb Dunkelberger, who's kind of the CEO of kind of a combined payer and a provider, um, a pay provider organization. And he's talking about how the incentives are already kind of aligned because insurance doesn't want to pay a lot for medical care because that way they can keep more of their money, right? And physicians obviously don't want poor outcomes. But it seems that they're like not aligned right now. And you just have physicians want to do one thing. There's so much backfight between prior authorizations, all these things. What do what does an aligned incentives look like? Yeah. Well, I can't speak to any any payer provider or pay provider. Yeah. But um, but I think at the root of it for me is um if you go back to that idea of value, uh what one thing I, I worry about is that we have um without intending to explicitly, we kind of um kind of We've calcified around this idea in many corners of healthcare that value is when you save money, you know, and if you save money and improve quality, that's great, right? You've heard that probably lower mm -hmm. cost, higher quality, mm -hmm. right? Or at a minimum, lower cost, stable quality. And I think those are obviously good outcomes if you can achieve them. But I think it, it loses sight of two things. <laughs> On the first level, just pause and think about what we're talking about. Higher quality, lower cost, right? Rolls right off the tongue. In what world is that a sustainable strategy into the future, right? At some point, yes, you're going to take away the overuse. You're going to do the things that maybe um, aren't the most necessary, but at some point, higher quality stuff costs more, right? That's Definitely. how that, that, that is actually an analogy to the refrigerator, right? <laughs> that, that, that's how, that's how things work. So I think we need to just really be sober, um, sober minded about this idea that once we kind of cut through that waste or the overuse, if we can call it that, we're going to get into a place where to get quality, we're going to have to spend more. And that's where I think this kind of idea that value equals cost cutting or cost savings is really problematic, particularly when you think about the equity piece. In other words, you might spend more, but you get the quality and health gains that outstrip that spending, right? So it's still valuable, still worth it. And I, I wish more groups in healthcare would, would um, not just recognize that in principle, but also design programs around that. You know, and that's incredibly tangible because it means you wouldn't design um, payment models and call it success only if you save money. That's one outcome, but you might spend more. The question then was, what is the health, the health benefit you would want for that spending? It's a great question. Yeah, these are all very good questions, and it's just asking them to the right people and actually coming up with solutions with the right people, with all kind of stakeholders involved. This is something you talk about kind of having all stakeholders at the table with a lot of incentives when it comes to equity, when it comes to payment. And one of the unfortunate things within medicine is that a lot of people say the people who don't need medicine often use a lot of services and the people who do need medicine or access to care, unfortunately don't use those services, whether they don't have access to them, they can't pay for them and all of that kind of stuff, either due to their socioeconomic status, transportation, all those kinds of things. Um, how can the right services be made available to the right people? Yeah. So here's how I think about it, right? One of the one of the the, the things that really 
guide my work is this um, recognition that unfortunately coverage does not equal access. So if I cover a service, it doesn't mean somebody accesses it, right? Mm -hmm. For a number of reasons, you're highlighting a number of, in other words, there are certain social drivers of health that can create barriers um, to getting access. And so I think we need to take kind of open up and have a wider aperture and take a broader view of how people get the right services. So I think it's at least a, a few things. One, yes, you do need coverage. You need insurance and you need coverage. If you don't have that, you don't have anything. Mm-hmm. But then once you have coverage, the question is how do you align incentives between payers and providers? I personally think things like payment models can help do that when when people can agree, right? To make sure that the delivery of care is aligned to that coverage. And then as I say, you know, in some of my work, I think money is a, a powerful motivator, but it's not the only one. Right. Think about the reason that you and I and others get up in the morning, the reason that we might um, do things such as counsel people on healthy behaviors. Uh, We might do screening. Uh, We might uh, sit with a a person um, that's going through a really difficult time. It's not money that's driving that, at least for a lot of the, you know, I'm a primary care trained Mm -hmm. internist. It's not that, you know, it's um, empathy. It's uh, wanting to take care of people. It's professionalism, right? It's all these other things. So the, the last piece of it to me is not just thinking, well, I'll pay and then I'll get the outcome that I want. There's all these other things that we need to think about, right? And how would you braid those together? How would you take the financial incentives that are in these payment models and delivery models? And how would you take all the non-financial motivations and put them together, cognizant of the decisions that I describe people have to make? I think those are the things... Um, that we need to do all of them to help ensure people get the right services. Definitely. And kind of, uh, another going back to the idea of those cutting edge treatments that are great. Yes, we can cure a new type of cancer by targeting a very specific receptor, but that's very cutting edge ends up being very costly and only benefits a very small percentage of the population that has X rare disease, right? Um, we spend a lot of money on that and those treatments are very expensive and we could be spending a lot of money, maybe like reaching those people, um, kind of bridging that gap as you're talking about finding solutions to being able to reach those people who have coverage, but aren't being able to use that coverage. How do we kind of reconcile that as well? Do we take away from those cutting edge treatments or we just kind of reallocate, reshuffle? How do we spend money to solve that problem? Yeah, I think it's a multi-component, um, um, issue. Uh, I'll highlight a few of them. One is that often um, when we're doing the studies to figure out does something work or not work, we're not enrolling in a representative way, right? And in fact, it is unfortunately, again, historically marginalized or excluded communities that often don't make their way into those trials for any Definitely. number of reasons. And so we're stuck with this evidence that it says something works, uh, but yet it doesn't apply, right? Clinicians know it doesn't mm-hmm. apply. So I think making sure we have representation um, and generalizability there, I think is, is key. That's one. Uh, two is that in any kind of efficacy, um, you know, trial, you're going to get a, a number, right? It does X percent better than whatever. Mm. Um, but then in the real world, right, the implementation is not always hundred percent, um, high fidelity in that. And so I think we need to spend energy and resources on thinking about implementation. Okay. So a study showed that there was X benefit, does that actually happen once you roll it out in a wider way? So that I think is the world of implementation and delivery research. Again, not something that maybe is the most scintillating thing, but I think it's incredibly important to just level set to say, hey, the effect yeah. that we thought we were going to have is not what we got, right? And we need to use that to like just head check ourselves a little bit. I think that's the second. And then I think the third is that um, I think the third is that we have often thought about innovations as in this way 
of like, what's the biggest bang for my buck? How do I get the greatest reduction in a bad outcome? The greatest increase in a good outcome? It's hard to argue that, the, the, the rationale. But I think what we've missed sometimes is this idea of like, instead of how, what's the biggest bang for our buck? Like what's the most even bang for our buck? You know, in other words, if we're going to derive benefit, how can we make sure that all patients and all communities benefit from it? And I think if we took that view to how we design studies, then looked at benefits, how we tested that on real world settings and how we set them payment policy, I think we'd be probably better off. Definitely. I, I really love the idea of kind of reframing innovation. And in my mind, I just kind of reframe that as kind of lateral innovation or in a sense where if you were doing like vertical innovation, you're figuring out new things, new technologies, increasing the span of medicine of what it can do. But lateral innovation might be how much medicine can we apply to as many people. And there's a lot of innovation to be had in that space, which is what it sounds like a lot of what we're talking about, what it sounds like a lot of what you're doing and the work that you're doing. So thank you for that. Yeah. And I, I want to just add to that, that, you know, not all types of innovation have the same, um, sparkle and, you know, and flash to them. Mm-hmm. And what we are talking about, um, in terms of making sure benefits accrue to different communities, right. Making sure that the impacts we're having are even that they are, they're equitable. Um, that is not often, um, really flashy stuff. You know, it, it's very, uh, human. It's a human-based, trust-based clinicians working with patients, people in their communities working with community-based organizations type of stuff. You know, It's not flashy. And so I, I think, um, I hope that that doesn't drive people away because the benefit we can get from that, I think is incredible, uh, but we have to just be aware that um, that's true. And I also hope that it doesn't drive people away because I think this is the, like the crux of preventive medicine. If you really want to help people on the population base and the large basis, you need to talk about these things because this is in reality how we're going to practice preventive medicine on a large scale. The things that are unfortunately flashy, like um, working out, all these workout like, routines, these fancy new supplements, all the, like these cutting edge treatments, do cold therapy, cryotherapy, all these kinds of things. Those are the flashy things. But if you really want to improve health, it's what we're talking about right here and what you're doing. So... Um, I 100% agree with you there. And another question that I want to ask you after this. So we've talked a lot about kind of um, what preventive care would look like and how to kind of integrate that into a payment model. But you are also a provider. We've talked a lot about medicine. From a preventive services aspect, kind of what does that look like? What markers are we looking for? And how do we put that in? What does that outcome look like? Yeah. So... um you know, part of another another maxim that I kind of guides my work is that always be thoughtful and mindful of, of what we don't know, right? And so I think if we think about the outcomes that we have measured, that we've prioritized clinical outcomes, outcomes like mortality, uh, certain types of morbidity, it's really important. I think you can think about prevention as the absence of those negative outcomes. But um, I think it's fair to say we have a lot more to do in healthcare um, related to capturing other types of outcomes, things like patient reported outcomes, functional outcomes, experience outcomes in a really more multifaceted way. Um, and I think without capturing those outcomes, it's hard to know, right? Exactly what health is. If we think about health as, you know, the opportunity to live a full life, not just in a physically healthy way, emotionally healthy way, psychologically healthy way. Um, if you're not measuring that stuff, it's very hard, right? To know that you're having, um, an impact. So that's a long way of saying, I think we need to do a lot better with our data collection and, and again, widen the aperture to think about other metrics that we would want to, we want to evaluate. 
And I like that you mentioned that because it actually ties into another episode that we had. Uh, so we had Dr. Jeffrey Linder on, um, who is a primary care physician, uh, internal medicine trained, who practices at Northwestern uh, here in Chicago. And he had a podcast on Gemma Network, also a wonderful article where he talks about kind of primary care and the quote unquote we uh, well visit, not necessarily leading to improved outcomes. Like it doesn't lead to better cardiovascular mortality. It doesn't lead to improved mortality outcomes in general, but it does improve things like patient reported outcomes, functional outcomes, and all those things. So it's kind of reframing, what are we looking at here? And once again, sorry, this is like an ad now. Um, it also ties into the last episode that we had or two episodes ago where we talked about kind of big data and what are we measuring to improve outcomes? And we have to have the correct things to measure before we know what interventions to make so that we can actually measure the validity, how well we can do these things and how to implement these things as well. So there's so many different aspects that this kind of ties into. Yeah. Listen, I think, um, information is not always data and data is not always insight and the translation of that of taking information and turning it into insight uh, and then to act on that insight is an incredibly human process to me um and i think it's ever been so in my opinion so i think yes i think not ma not making sure we are humble enough to recognize we have good data in some cases we could be better about it you know, um, I think is incredibly important. And I think the notion that the data will tell us the way to go, um, I personally think is a little misguided. Definitely. And as a clinician, I want to ask you, how do you take all of these perspectives that we're talking about and center to your patient in front of you? Is there a way to do that? Uh, I think so. I think so. I think it's to recognize that the things that you and I learned about the nephron and <laughs> alpha one receptors is incredibly important. I think it's also, you know, I'll tell you a couple of other ways I apply it. It's, it's understanding that, you know, if you prescribe things to patients, if you create a, say a post-discharge plan in the hospital, or you're sitting down with someone in the clinic and you're prescribing things, you're setting up a plan and either you, A, don't think about the social drivers of health, right? Um, or B, you, um, don't think to even ask about them. I, I think that that's a problem, right? Um, and I think it, this this sea change around recognizing social drivers of health, what I hope it does is it, it prompts clinicians to say, you know, I may do all the evidence-based, the guideline-based things, but it may not actually achieve impact if I'm not addressing those social issues or I'm not even screening or asking about them. Uh, by analogy, you can think about, you know, the more recent, I think, attention to things like motivation or interviewing and engaging patients in shared decision-making. Yet again, I can, I can rip off a, you know, a plan and a prescription for you and a management approach. But if I haven't engaged you in that, it's not quite clear to me how that aligns with your values and your preferences, right? And so in that way, health means different things to different people. And so how do I take this to my patients? Um, it means very practical. When I'm thinking about how do I approach diagnosing something, or treating something or preventing something, I'm not only am I thinking, what's the evidence, you know, what's the physiology and the pathophysiology, I'm also thinking, what are the economics that could be at play? What are the social factors that could be at play? Is this person contemplative, engaged, pre-contemplative? I'm, I'm putting all that together. And then I'm asking the patient, right? And his, her, their loved ones. I mean, they have to be the ones central in their care. Um, and so, you know, these things sometimes seem kind of like little conceptual, but no, I mean, this definitely affects how I practice. Now I've, because I've been uh, fortunate enough to talk to experts like yourself and, and amazing clinicians, I've kind of gained a lot of this, even as an intern. And when I see my own patients, I'm kind of trying to think about all this. It's a lot to remember actual medicine and to do all this together. So props to you for kind of putting it all in one piece. Um, 
but it also reminds me that there's so much that I can't do in one personal like visit because there's so much else outside of this patient's lives outside in the hospital that goes into their care. And it's very difficult to kind of uh, reconcile that with what I'm talking about, with what I'll write, how I'll present the patient to my attending and all those kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. Listen, you know, um, I, I think what I was going to say this earlier, so I'm glad you brought this up. You know, it highlights, it's not any one person you know, that, that can do this. It has to really be a team approach. Um, and that seems glib, but I, but I mean that, um, and, you know, does a clinician have to check all those boxes, do all the screening, do all the prescribing? Is there a team approach where you have navigators, care managers, you know, pharmacists, nurses, medical assistants? Um, I think, yeah. And then, and then how do you, even if you identify a social driver of health, is that something that within your own clinical practice, you can affect not always. Right. And so what are the tie downs to community based organizations, right? And other groups. I think these are all things we need to really grapple with. Um, and so all of that kind of wrapped in this idea of if we really want to put the patient at the center, you know, and health at the center, it probably means rethinking what we've done historically in the healthcare system. Definitely. And these are absolutely fascinating conversations, but in the interest of time, we're not going to continue diving down that uh, rabbit hole. And also probably for our listeners ears that are like, man, how can these people talk about this for so long? I'm going to kind of scope out a little bit. One of your other roles is kind of on the um, more legislative side, maybe. I don't know exactly. You can tell me what you do, but you have served or you do serve on the Physician-Focused Payment Model Technical Advisory Committee. That's a mouthful. PTAC. What does it do? What is it? What is your role in there? Yeah. Um, so I am a member of PTAC. You're right. It is a mouthful. Um, it is um, a group. It, it's a committee of those of us who have spent our careers and committed our careers to thinking about payment and related delivery issues. And it's a group that basically uh, tries to provide recommendations to the secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services around payment issues. And historically, that's involved um you know, looking at proposals that come from the community it could be from individual clinicians, could be from a professional society, but ideas about how to change how we pay for healthcare and really putting it through the lens of, will this yield better outcomes? And then thinking through all the technical things of like, is it reproducible? How would we study it? Those types of things. So, um, you know, we do that more recently. We've been doing kind of listening sessions where we try to actually field um, input from experts around the country to learn as well and, and wrap that together in our recommendations. So, um, it's one of those things where, you know, uh, it's probably not scintillating to most people, but I really love the work. I think it's uh, um, an important thing uh, to really use payment as a tool to drive outcomes and equity. A question that a lot of listeners might have is, do they actually listen to these recommendations? Because it sounds like uh, the general sentiment, it seems these days, I'm not getting political here, but it sounds like a lot of people don't trust the government and they don't think they're taking any recommendations. Uh, like they do what they want, essentially. Do the recommendations that you make actually make a difference? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's quite a big question, isn't it? <laughs> it's a loaded question. I know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it takes me back to this really idea that I think, um, policy and public policy is one way to affect change, but it's not the only one. Right. And so for example, I think hospital CEOs, clinic directors, service line uh, leaders, you know, people that you wouldn't think of as policymakers, if you're drafting protocols, if you're deciding how care is delivered, you know, clinical pathways, mm -hmm. um, you're creating policy. Uh, you know, I, I, I and others call that private policy, right? So public policy is just, I think, one way in which um, you affect change. And in the world of public policy, it's a, it's a kind of confluence of timing as well as the knowledge and the insight mm -hmm. right, in a number of different things. Um, in the time that I've been doing this, have I seen recommendations from group like, groups like PTAC get put into payment policy? 
Yes, I have. Not always one-to-one, not always in the way it's most obvious, but yes. But I think that is part of the um, really important, but yet complex process of legislation, right? <laughs> um, but, but again, I want to say that that is one thing. Healthcare leaders, leaders at payers, um, I think they drive change as well. The private sector, you know, people who are trying to innovate through companies uh, and new initiatives, I think they play a role as well. So we shouldn't lose sight of that. I'm so happy that they're taking some recommendations um, and actually doing some of that from like the individual perspective. If you're not involved in these things, oftentimes you don't know what's going on behind those doors. You don't know if anything's actually making progress. And with persons like yourself making these recommendations as part of a team, um, I'm very happy that we're moving something forward at least. Thank you so much for your time. There's so many pearls in this entire episode. I'm gonna try to listen through several times, see if I can take any of them and actually internalize (laughs) them and hopefully implement them into my own practice and thoughts. But I wanna thank you so much for your time. I know it was kind of difficult scheduling this. (laughs) No, 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 thanks for having me on and um, uh, glad to share a few thoughts. Really appreciate it, take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help us spread the message of prevention, first off, rate and review this podcast. Second off, you can find our content on our social media platforms at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next one.